following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. All right, if you would, grab your Bible or electronic device that has a Bible on it. We are in the book of Genesis. We're going to start at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to go to Genesis 2, verse 3. I'm just going to give you a little bit of of some help this morning. You might want a a journal or something too as well uh, because I'm going to throw a lot of content at you. We are going to, in the book of Genesis, hit the highlights. So we are not going to go... Uh, specifically like every verse of Genesis, but you'll see as kind of our year progresses how we're tackling Genesis. So um, these are going to be some familiar stories for some of you, and then for others of you, this is going to be brand new. So when you open up your Bibles, uh, it's the easiest book to find, right? I mean, it's the first one. If you miss it, um, just go back, all right? Uh, So we are in Genesis, and like I said, we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. Uh, So let's just jump right into it, and let me give you a little bit of an intro to the book of Genesis, all right? Genesis, Jewish tradition. Now, why would I even mention Judaism to start? Uh, Well, the Jews, all right, tied in with the Israelites, uh, God's chosen people, and so it is important for us to look at that when we study anything Old Testament, left side of Scripture, okay? So Jewish tradition and other biblical writers are going to declare that Moses is uh, the author of not only Genesis, but the entire Pentateuch, or law, first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Who is Moses? Moses is the great prophet and the great deliverer of Israel. You know him because he's the one that declares, let my people go. All right? So uh, Moses is going to be our author. Now, where do we get that from? Is it just Old Testament? No. Actually, Jesus confirmed that Moses was the author in John chapter 5, verse 45, as well as multiple scribes and Pharisees, some who were believers that Jesus was the Messiah and some that were not believers that Jesus was the Messiah. The word Genesis, what I do in every book of the Bible is I put underneath of the title what it means. In Genesis, that word means beginning or origin or generation, and that is the themes that are going to run throughout the entire book of Genesis. You're going to see origins and beginnings, and it's going to talk about from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. So all that's going to be there. Genesis is primarily written for God's people, so there's an immediate context of Scripture, and then there's a broader context of Scripture for us today. So the meanings can be twofold. Number one, it can go to the Israelites, God's people, or it can extend beyond that into us. So we need to make sure that we're studying that as we walk through this book. The Israelites, Moses led out of slavery in Egypt, as some of you know, and Genesis is written so that those Israelite people would have a history of where they came from, the journeys that they made, and the covenants that they made with God. 
Now, you're going to hear me say two names for God today. You're going to hear the name Elohim. We'll get there in a second. And you're going to hear the name Yahweh, which is the covenant God of Israel. He's the God above all other gods. He is the living God. So we have all of these events that are written down for the Israelites. Now, here's kind of the crazy thing. And forgive me because I geek out on the Bible a lot. Like, I think it's really cool how Scripture works together. But all of the events in the other four Pentateuch books, or the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all right, are responses to promises that were made in Genesis. So in order to understand the four other books of the law, you got to understand Genesis. The first 11 chapters speak of history, of who, who humans are, in broad strokes. So they're going to cover a lot of ground really, really fast. And then you get past chapter 11, and you're going to get past the flood, and you're going to see a focus start to narrow on how God deals with a specific family named Abram who was living in the region of Mesopotamia. So Genesis calls us to remember that God makes covenants with his people. And those covenants are just promises. So you have Old Testament, old promise, new covenant, new promise. And since God makes these promises, we start in the Old Testament where sin broke perfect peace between God and humanity. And it moves into the New Testament where God establishes plan for redemption and blessing through Abraham that is reaffirmed with Isaac and then Jacob, and it leads all the way up to Jesus. So Genesis screams of Jesus. He's all throughout the text. You just got to look closely, all right? So all of Genesis is going to remind us of the strength of the Lord. He's strong. He's faithful. He's just, and his creation is glorious. How's that for an intro? We good? All right, buckle up. Here we go. Okay, so all of this, we're talking about God's glorious creation, and In the book of Revelation, it says God's second coming will be glorious, all right? So that just makes sense, super fitting. All right, let's start with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, Now, underline in the text, Moses starts out his narrative talking about the foundation of creation within the beginning. we got to break down that word. The word beginning refers to an entire six literal 24-hour days. (laughs) Some of you Bible students are like, all right, I see where we're going there. All right, now we're going to get there in just a second when we talk about days. Beginning is not something before the six days or just a part of the first day. It encompasses the entire creation account. So this is all of it in the beginning, this entire creation account, God. Now, if you want to, you can circle that word God. That's really interesting because that is the word Elohim, which is plural in the Hebrew. A triune God, three in one. So here we see a name that represents God's majesty, his strength, his power, his superior relationship to all creation. When Moses says, in the beginning, God, he's saying, in the beginning, there was a sustainer. 
Elohim is a heavenly being. He is unlike human beings. He has no beginning. He has no opposition. He has no limitation. Elohim is all-powerful. He creates and brings creation into existence with his word. One of my prayers for us in 2024 is we fall in love with the awe and adoration of Elohim. That he is God. He is the one who reveals to us his immeasurable power, incomprehensible imagination, and the fact that he is righteous. Elohim creates the heavens and the earth, and that is what we call the cosmos. All right, that's all of it. He creates all of those things. Now, here's what I love about God. Ready? It's organized. God is not a God of disorder. He's not a God of chaos. He's not a God of confusion. He's not uh, a God who goes off on emotion. He is a God who is very systematic in his approach and organizing the universe where life will live. Now, verse 2. I know, we're getting there. You're like, we got a lot of scripture to go. Just stay with me, all right? Verse two, the, the beginning, God creates heavens and earth without form. Now, there's no account of Elohim creating planet earth or darkness or water. We just don't have that. Moses simply just declares that the earth exists without form. Now, let's talk about that word earth for just a second. Earth can be used one of three ways. It can signify the entire cosmos, it can, be, it can be all of it, all right? Two, it can be part of a compound phrase with heaven that signifies dry land. You're standing on dry land, all right? Or three, it could be used as it's used here, which is a planet. So we're talking specifically about planet Earth, all right? The Earth was formless and empty. And when you get those words, what we're seeing here is it means it's uncreated and there's no disorder to it, and God is going to put order into it. And darkness is over the face of the deep, or a dark abyss. And when you see darkness over the face of the deep, all you need to know is that means it's inhospitable to life. Life can't live there, all right? It's not ready for life yet, all right? Now, darkness and deep are really interesting. Those two words, fascinating in Scripture. Darkness and deep are opposites of light and land, Darkness and deep imply evil. Exodus 15, Proverbs chapter 2. Possible, now don't go, stay with me here for a second. It's possible that this is an indicator of where Satan fell before God created the earth. I wouldn't like stake my, my entire doctrine on it, but I think there's a good case for it. Regardless, both the darkness and the deep become part of, which I love, Elohim's creation and they do his will. Okay? So, what are we getting at? How do we apply those two passages of Scripture? Good question. In creation, the Spirit of God, now this is really interesting, Spirit there is the word Ruah, and then you have God, which is Elohim. So, Ruah Elohim, right, was hovering over the face of the waters. Ruah is modified by Elohim here to mean the Holy Spirit is like an eagle, And he is hovering over the abyss, and he's preparing earth for creation and human occupancy. Now, all three persons of the triune God are present here in the creation account. You have Elohim, verse 1, the Spirit, verse 2, 
And you have the living word, who is Jesus, who is about to speak. You're like, wait, hold on a second. How'd you get Jesus out of that passage of scripture? In John chapter one, verse one, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That word, word is the word logos. Logos is Christ, the living word of God. He's the creator that is present in Genesis. And so here in John chapter one, verse three and four, it says, all things were made through him. John is saying, it's very similar to Genesis chapter one. As the spirit hovers, it prepares for this creative word of God, which fits all of God's work. So what? The spirit is at work when the word of God is given. So just keep that in mind. The spirit is at work when the word is given. We live by the word of God. It is the foundation of creation. Now here's what Jesus says. Ready for this? Man does not live on what? Bread alone, what does he live on? The word of God. Where did he get that from? He stole it from Moses, all right? But he didn't because he's the one that said it at the start. All right, now we go into verse three, the days of creation. All right, verse three. And God said, God speaks. Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. God separates the light from the darkness. He calls the light day, and the darkness he calls night, and there's evening, and there's morning. It is the first day. Now, here's the organization. It is like um, God is, is systematically structuring the earth as it needs to be. Creation, first day, God says, similar to John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, that there be, that word be is to bring into existence what was not. That's Hebrews chapter 11, by the way. Light, not the sun, that comes later. But light here is a tangible symbol of his life and blessings. He's showing the world that he exists, okay? God saw, that's a metaphor for his spiritual perception, that the light was good or beneficial or desirable because light and land were bound or organized and about to serve useful tasks. And then he filled, God filled, with goodness and joy. Light and darkness separated, why? Because, quite simply, they don't belong together. They have different tasks. And he called, I love this, which is a name equated with existence, day. Now, circle that word day in the scripture. Super important for you to understand. That is the Hebrew word yom. We'll get there in just a second. And he separated the night darkness. Now, day, yom, can mean a couple things. It can mean a literal 24-hour period, right? So you have like from... 11 to 11, like 24 hours, it's a day, a yom. Or you can have ages or eras like the day of the Lord, right, which is extended period of time. We can argue for a literal 24-hour day, but context calls us to remember Elohim's creation is orderly, and it shows how God is starting to accommodate himself to humanity's finite understanding of his glory. Now, when Moses says, there was evening and there was morning the first day. It's better translated, evening came and then morning. Hebrew says the first day ends when the darkness of the evening is dispelled by the morning light. 
Now, why in the world is that important? Why do we have to highlight that? Why would Moses use that terminology in this text? Why would he unpack that in that way? Well, pagan religions worshipped creation over the creator. And so what Moses is doing is he's saying you have to see that those of you who are lost is the creator is the one that deserves the worship, not the creation that depends on him. So he's calling, he's calling people, he's saying, hey, essentially, like, worship Elohim, God, the creator, and not the creation, because he is the one who gets rid of darkness and brings in the light. Second day, verse 6. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the, uh, from the waters. And God made the expanse, and he separated the waters that were under the expanse. A lot of words, expanse there. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, and because I like uh, participation today, the second day. All right, we're going to keep you guys moving in the right direction. All right. Or the second yom. All right. <clears throat> God said, let there be an expanse. Underline that word expanse. That is the Hebrew word for atmosphere or a sky. It's a dense moisture that covers the earth and an area of atmospheric pressure. In verse 8, this expanse is called heaven or the word for skies. An eternal resting place for believers, maybe. We don't know, all right? But here's what's interesting. Other passages of scripture speak to the expanse. Job said that this expanse was hard as a mirror in Job 37, 18. And Isaiah the prophet declared it was like a canopy in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. What we need to understand is that God is making divisions and distinctions in his creation that will soon support life. He is operating in his time to make sure that life is going to happen and it's going to be able to operate. It's all happening in his time. The expanse is separating the waters from the waters means God's making a division of the source of rain, the skies, and the waters on the earth. Now, there's no seas or bodies of water yet. Now, underline the word, it was so. You're like, I'm underlining a lot in my Bible. Yeah, get used to it. This is how it works. This is called studying scripture, all right? And it was so means that God created and it took its fixed place. In other words, it doesn't have another place to operate. This is where it's supposed to be, in time and in space, and it's made in perfect conjunction with all other aspects of creation, all other systems, all other structure, all other order. Everything is in its fixed place. It is so. Verse 9, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so, or it was fixed into place. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God said, that's good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation and plants and yielding seeds and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed. I love that. I love fruit. Each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. It was fixed. It was in its proper place. And the earth brought forth vegetation and plants, and all of you gardeners are like, yay, yielding seeds according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in their seed. And God saw each one according to its kind, and he saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Great band. All right. <clears throat> so on the third yom, God said there's to be dry land or earth, a place able to produce and sustain all life and space for land creatures and people. 
gathered bodies of water were called seas. Now notice, if you have the English Standard Version of the Bible, the word seas there is capitalized. And that means it's an actual place. Also, would you do me a favor, if you ever write a paper or whatever the case is, or if you're ever writing anything down, earth should also be capitalized. It's a place. It's where we live, all right, for the time being. Um, Earth would sprout plants and trees that would each produce different kinds of fruit and seeds according to its kind. So you have all of these higher life forms here in regards to food sources. Now, it's really important that we establish something before moving forward. This so-called nature is an area where God mediates his master design and appoints purposes and reproductive power. This is the first place where we see things starting to reproduce, right? And as we see those things happen, our society wants to call this Mother Nature. That's blasphemous. This planet that we live on is not Mother Nature. It's Elohim's creation. If you ever hear somebody say Mother Nature, correct them. This is my father's world. This is not Mother Nature. That's pagan. God evaluates his, decre- his, his creation and twice in verses 9 through 13 declares it good because why? It's his. He's allowed to do that. He says this is good. All right, so third day. Verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let there be signs for the season and for the days and for the years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give them light upon the earth. And it was so. It was fixed in place. God made the two great lights. He made the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He also made the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heaven to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Now, on the fourth day, God said that the lights were needed in the expanse of the heaven to do two things. First thing, separate the day from the night, and two, mark signs, seasons, days, and years. If you want to write something in the side of the Bible here, this is the beginning or the creation of time as we know it. This is literally time coming into existence. This is where God is saying, this is how people will mark out how things operate in linear time. The lights uh, mark out also a comprehensive divine order for Israel's sacred seasons. This is a slap in the face to anybody who believes in zodiac signs. This is like not, like this, this is not what we have. We don't, we don't have astrology here or anything like that. This is Israel's sacred seasons. The two great lights are the sun and the moon, and they're in direct opposition to various pagan religions and Eastern myths who claim that the sun and the moon were deities. They are not. It was funny, uh, just the other day we were at a bookstore, and they had, <laughs> this, is so, this is so weird, one section is um, religion in regards to like Christian religion, and the next section was astrology. And so, like, I could literally go, this is religion, and I would turn around and be like, astrology. And I'd be like, I'm living Genesis 1 right now, all right? Like, all you have to do is open up first book of the Bible, and this needs to go away. This gets to stay, except for a couple books by pagans, but we won't go there, all right? So, you have all of these things, okay, that Near Eastern people believed that the stars directed people's destinies. 
Moses is saying stars don't direct our destinies. God does. The zodiac signs don't direct our destiny. God does. Astrology doesn't direct our destiny. God does. Now, you probably think to yourself, like, is that like a thing of the past? It's really not. It's just as prevalent today as it was 40, 50, 60 years ago. People still read their horoscopes today. It's crazy how they do it. But the sun and the moon aren't deities of a pagan pantheon. They're nameless. Isn't it funny? In Genesis, they're not named. Man names them. God doesn't name them. He just says they're lights that are there to serve humanity. Scripture declares the sun, moon, stars declare the glory of God the creator in Psalm chapter 19, verse 1. And this is good to God. Verse 20. God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures. Here we go. Life. All right. I know plant life is a good round, but still, bear with me. Let birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the heavens. And so God created a great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which waters swarm according to their kinds. Every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. He set it into place. And God blessed them. His first word, blessing. And he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, church, the fifth day. On the fifth yom, God said the waters would swarm with swarms of living creatures. That's the word nepis in Hebrew. And it's a term used for living creatures, but here it defines two sets of creatures. You got sea creatures, number one, and you got birds of the air. The oceans and the skies were created for the sole purpose to host and support animal life. This is, as I was reading this and studying this, I was like, oh, that's why we haven't populated the oceans yet. I always wondered, like, why don't we inhabit the oceans? Like, there's a lot of land going on there. Well, we're not supposed to live in the oceans, Jordan. All right, I'm glad I'm on the same page. All the life, though, is blessed. Circle that word, blessed. Blessed means to be filled with the potency of life. This life was commanded to be fruitful and multiply. It's a rule. And the creatures of the oceans rule as part of that creation, and the birds of the air rule that part of God's expanse. If you want to know the awe of God, like just this week, look up, see birds. God has set them into place. It was so. And it declares his glory. If you see water and you see creatures that live in that water, I know we don't have the ocean, unfortunately, but it is a declaration of the glory of God. Verse 24, we're getting there. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kinds. So here's our farmers, like this is why you have livestock, all right? And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground, even though you guys don't like those things, according to its kinds. And God saw even the mice were good. I know, after the fall they got not good, but whatever. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image. There's that plural wording. It doesn't say my, it says our. Three and one. And let us make them after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps over the earth. So that just proof there that we can kill mosquitoes. And so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. That speaks into our culture a little bit, yeah. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. 
Never had to preach on that. And subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, it's a big word, I have given you every plant yielding seed. Now he's talking, and we'll get into this a little bit later as we see that this is unpacked in a little bit different way in the later chapters. But yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, verse 29, and seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heaven, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, it was set into place. And God saw that everything that he has made it good, and behold, it was, when man comes in, it's very good. And there was evening, and there was morning church, the... Okay, on the sixth yom, let's break this down just real quick. God said the remainder of the earth would be filled with livestock, creeping things, and beasts of the earth. There's your three. Now, there's a distinction here between domesticated, all right, and wild animals. So cattle from carnivores. That's from the beginning. Elohim sees land animals as good, but they're not blessed like sea creatures or birds because sea creatures or birds inhabit very different spheres. In other words, they don't present any threat to humans. Man is male and female. We don't have to go on to that, okay? You have men and you have women. It's so. It's supposed to be that way, all right? And they're created in Elohim's image. Man comes first, then woman, and in his likeness. That means that they are created, set apart from all other creatures. We are not a part of the food chain, all right? That's not, that's not what he's, he, he's, he's saying here. He's saying you're given dominion, and that word dominion means rule over creation. Man is appointed king over creation. And because he's king over creation, he is responsible to Elohim as the ultimate king. So who are we responsible to? Responsible to God. That's, that's what he's declaring here, all right? Because we're made in his image, and we're expected to manage and develop and care for creation Via work. Now, you're not going to like this at all, but I got to tell you, on the sixth day, work is created. And there's a hard case that you will work when Jesus comes back. Now, work is fruitful and fulfilling before the fall. It's frustrating after the fall. When Jesus comes back, we're back to being fruitful work, okay? Fruitful labor. I know it's hard for you to wrap your mind around, but it's here, all right? Now, this is really interesting. This terminology comes from Egyptians where kings would set up colossal statues of themselves as signs of their authority over religion. But God's image in humanity means that he is alive, and he placed it in human beings who are responsible to take care of creation. When sin enters the human race, humanity's capabilities are going to diminish, And then you have pre-fall humanity is empowered to be fruitful and multiply, which is a blessing that comes from God. For he alone gives life and makes it productive and vegetation along with the beasts of the earth. Now, if you look at the text, it says every plant yielding seed and every tree with seed in its fruit as food. What are we getting at here? Elohim's divine evaluation of the total creation prior to the fall was very good, set into place, and so... He didn't ruin it, we did. So you can't look at God and blame him. It's our fault as humanity. God says all of this is good. 
And you are to be stewards of what God has declared so or set into place. Now, the crazy thing is, in chapter 2, it ends, creation ends, but it really doesn't. Watch this. In verse, in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. What does Jesus say on the cross? That is not a coincidence. And the host of them, and on the seventh day, God cre- finished his work that he had done, and he rests on the seventh day. From all of his work that he had done, and so God blessed, and the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work that he had done. It's like Moses says the same thing three different times. It's just a constant reiteration. Now, the seven yom is mentioned three times because it shows that it's significant above all other days. And when we get into the seventh yom, we see that Elohim finished his work and rested, not because he's tired. God does not get tired. It is to show that creation is complete from all the works that he had done. Now, look at this. In the seventh yom, he also blessed it and made it holy. That word holy is where we get sanctified. The word sanctified means set apart. It's the first thing in the Torah, which is the beginning of the Bible, showing how God imparts his holiness and so sets everything apart to himself. Now, notice, there is no mention in the seventh day of evening and morning. It's not there. There's no mention of that, and it's perhaps it's because the Sabbath ordinance continues when humans are urged to participate in it. Now, I'm going to unpack this for you real quick. In Colossians chapter 2 and Galatians chapter 4, they make it clear that we who are believers, those who have confessed with their mouth and trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, repented of sins, believers in Christ are not under the obligation to observe the Sabbath. If you choose to have a Sabbath day, I need to just be clear with you, it's not biblical. You won't, you won't find it. Because one, you're not a Jew, and two, we see that Jesus fulfilled the purpose and the plan of the Sabbath for us and in us in Hebrews chapter 4. Before the fall, the seventh yom represents the perfect creation, sanctified and at rest. After the fall, the seventh yom, rest becomes the goal to be sought. So even today, believers look forward and long for eternal, redemptive Sabbath rest in whom? In Christ. He is our rest. All the other gods built temples as a sign of victory, but God institutes a Sabbath rest, and the Sabbath rest will be the temporal shrine in which the people of Israel can rest from their labors, pointing to the Messiah who will come. So creation, seen through the eyes of the new nation of Israel in Moses' day, had great theological significance. Out of creation, or out of chaos and darkness of the pagan world, God brings his people himself, teaches them truth, guarantees them victories over all powers in heaven and earth, and commissions them to be representatives and promises them rest. That's Christianity 101. If you go back and you look at it, out of darkness, we have been saved from our sins. God has brought us, who were not his people, to become his people. He has taught us the truth by the word of God, who is Jesus Christ. He has guaranteed us victory over sin, and he has commissioned us in Matthew 28 to be his representatives 
promising rest for those who believe in Christ. The New Testament is just the Old Testament unpacked in a different way. It's legitimately the same story. It's just retold by the redemptive creator who knew at the beginning of the creation that humanity would sin and need restoration. So creation is both art and it's a display of God's powerful covenant with creation. It exists Why? Why do we have this? So that we may know our origin and be a covenant community with a proper worldview wise unto salvation. The words of Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, scream for our responsibility to call people back to Elohim, the great creator who created us. Creation represents the world coming into existence, being through God's proclamation. This world depends on his will, his purpose, and his presence and our responsibility to be caretakers of what he has entrusted to our care. So the response to all of this is to reflect the well-being that we are made in the image of God. That you are made in the image of God and you are called to be instruments of his love and grace in a sin-saturated world. The Israelites would have read this passage of Scripture and realized that their responsibility in a sin-saturated world was declare the goodness of God. What is our call and command as believers in the New Testament? To call a sin-saturated society back to the awe and the adoration of who God is and what he's done for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. Elohim has created and entrusted. We reflect his image, and are instruments of his love. And we rest in Christ until he comes and puts us back into a world that is perfect and restores back order. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, that's a lot. And we thank you, first and foremost, before we go any further, for creating the heavens and the earth, and everything within it. We are so grateful for the beauty of this world. We ask for forgiveness for the fact that we don't behold you. And we don't behold your creation. And we don't look in the mirror and see ourselves that we are created in your image. If you're here this morning, and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, make today the day of your your salvation. Repent of your sins. Trust in Christ as Savior, the Messiah who came. The Word, the living God. Lord, some of us as believers look in the mirror in the morning and we have poor self-image because we do not realize who we are in Christ. And despite our mistakes, we understand that even before the world was created, you planned to save and restore And it is incredible to witness your purpose unfolding in the text, particularly in these early passages of Genesis. Thank you for teaching us about creation and rest and new beginnings and the fact that you want to do the same in us. We pray, Lord, and we plead with you that those who don't have a relationship with you, many of which who aren't even here today and need to hear it from us and the conversations that will take place this week, would believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, would repent of their sins, become children through faith, 
And for those of us who know you as Savior, we pray, Lord, in 2024 that you would instill in us a sense of awe and adoration for the great covenant God of Israel, the great covenant God of the world. That we're so grateful to be a part of the life that you have offered to us. We know that one day that because of our faith in Christ, we will share in your perfect and peaceful kingdom. A restoration, Lord, of everything that has been broken. We look in Genesis 1 and we realize that it was so, it was good, and we destroyed it. And so we plead that you would come back and restore it. Give us peace, Lord, with you today and within ourselves as we continue to make your son known. And due diligence by being people who are commanded to take care of your creation, to share your word in our deeds and actions. May all of that be an offering of worship and an opportunity to reflect on what stewardship means with what you have entrusted to our care, that we would see everything as an opportunity to leverage the gospel so the people who are far from you would come to know you and the people who know you would be encouraged and edified and continue to see the awe of who you are that spurs us on to worship. Thank you for preparing a table before us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab. 